Thank you all for coming out on a snowy late winter's day. I'd like to take a moment to offer a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, we ask that you abide with us in this place at this time as we consider the glory that you inspire and teach each of us over time. Allow us to be cognizant and grateful for all your many gifts now and forevermore. Amen. Okay, uh, today is the first of four classes where we'll be exploring some themes of history as they ultimately we, excuse me, weave into the American tapestry. And a launching point is a series of paintings by Edward Hicks called The Peaceable Kingdom. And this will re re the image will change, but it will recur today and on future Sundays. If you can imagine, Hicks was a Quaker minister in the early 19th century and became inspired uh, ultimately over the course of almost 30 years. He painted 61 variations of this. It was before printing would allow multiple copies. So this is one of uh, his later ones. Somehow we're missing part of the image. Be fun. The overall title is Swords into Plowshares, and it was inspired by uh, somebody here in the class who was on the Adult Education Committee and asked that we take a moment to consider when conflict arises, how do Christians react? Anybody is good with technology. Uh, we're probably going to encounter some left margin errors here. Oof. Okay, with apologies, we'll have to go with less than full screen. And it's still clicking off. Um, on the sheet which you have, it gives the English translation of this. If you can imagine that the, the freedom that we have enshrined in our Constitution of uh, freedom of worship is a modern concept until literally the late 16th, early 17th century, it did not exist. Uh, as it says on, on your sheet, essentially, Whoever is, is your king decides who you, uh, what your religion is. And at the outset of the 17th century, there was a fragile peace between the Catholics and the Protestants, I'm sorry, the Lutherans specifically. And what's important to understand is that, again, your local principality determined uh, what your religion was, and those allegiances were often tied to uh, money. And a complicating factor as the 17th century began was that John Calvin had adherents as well. And 
there wasn't enough map to divvy up among three. And so one of the realities uh, that we too often fail in looking in the rearview mirror to appreciate is that as events are happening, the people in that moment in time have very limited horizons. And so this map, which is from 1618, um, they didn't know that the 30 years war was about to begin. However, in retrospect, that's what we, we label it, but in, in the moment, it was a clash of titans between those chiefly who were uh, supporting Protestant principalities and those who were supporting the Holy Roman Empire. Now, all this prologue is important because from this conflict, which engulfed the, mod or the almost modern world in the first half of the 17th century, it it bore an idea here on these shores. So this is London in the 1616 range, and here's Paris, just to give you a sense of the population centers and just how developed and clustered they were. They were close to a million plus uh, population centers then. But in 1618, conflict began and quickly escalated as uh, the sides committed more and more resources. In the early 1630s, I'm sorry, 1628 technically, the king of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, took up the Protestant flag and committed tens of thousands of his men and the silver in his kingdom to lead the Protestant pushback against the Catholics. This is Germain. So for four years, Adolphus uh, led mostly victories until in 1632 he was killed in action. Uh, his army won, but he, he died. Now, before he died, he had a vision which he imparted to one of his principal advisors of establishing a Swedish dominion, a Swedish kingdom uh, in the New World. It didn't happen in his lifetime, but that principal advisor was the head of the regency that looked after the crown until Adolphus's daughter came of age. Meanwhile, the New World was seeded with a, a variety of different uh, colonies and attempts to gain a foothold. So this is 1607-1608 in Virginia, Jamestown, and as, as we appreciate that the various colonies that we look back on uh, as enshrined in our history, that there were a great variety of, well, actually there were three. Um, there were charters, which were principally business ventures, and that included New Amsterdam. Uh, there were crown colonies, which reported directly to the king, or queen, and there were proprietary ones. There were two, Maryland and Pennsylvania. Not coincidentally, Maryland and Pennsylvania were the two from the outset that had the most liberal policy regarding people practicing other faiths. So beginning in 1606, uh, the, the Virginia colony had a sequence of 
charters and documents that otherwise set up who they were and uh, what they were about. If you can imagine, in the second Virginia Charter, which was just a few years after the first one, there were 706 people who were named in this document as beneficiaries, as getting land grants and all this stuff. There was not a word regarding religion one way or another except in the opening where they asked for God's blessing on the enterprise. So these are European uh, depictions of what this new world, this uh, otherwise uncharted, un- un- yeah, no. <laughs> okay. So the, the purpose of the maps here are to help us appreciate that in the old world, the real estate was all parceled off, coveted, and fought over. In fact, to the point that during the conflict, this 30 years war, that what had been a new world crop introduced to Europe around 1500 after Columbus came back, the potato, it was originally used for the first century, it was used simply as fodder for animals. It was not fit for human consumption. But over the course of three decades of total war in Central Europe, and now what we would call Germany mostly, uh, that the people were reduced, their their crops were all lost, uh, as were their livestock, and they were reduced to rooting around in the ground for this root vegetable potato. And that's what some people who survived subsisted on. Meanwhile, the population of, of Central Europe lost over a third, upwards of a half, of the population died in, in this back forth as armies would, tens of thousands of people would move, take what they needed, leave, and then the surviving residents would be left with nothing. Meanwhile, here in the New World, there is bounty aplenty and people wanted to lay claim to it. So Virginia originally was a charter company, but about 20 years, not even 20 years after it was founded at Jamestown, that the crown took it over, that they couldn't govern themselves. But once again, rarely is religion present tense in the documents. And for me, for those of you who uh, heard Tony Campolo, either when he spoke in here or during worship, um, he spoke about uh, the importance of red letter Protestantism and that for him, uh, the words of Jesus in red are the, the most important. Likewise, for me, when I go back and try and re-examine what happened, I like dealing as much as possible with principal documentation. So we might have a general notion that, oh, the freedom to practice one's religion is otherwise enshrined in much of what came before our US Constitution. It's not. And in fact, only uh, Maryland had any, anything comparable or approaching what we have come to, to take for granted. Likewise, up in Boston, the Massachusetts Bay Colony ultimately, and before that the Mayflower Compact, um, that religion 
when it's mentioned, is chiefly asking for God's blessing on what the enterprise that they are engaged in. So again, here's the uh, Northeast seaboard as cartographers in the early 17th century understood it. Most of it is wild terra incognito. So, you can imagine, turn sideways, this is the Chesapeake Bay from uh, one of the first maps of Maryland. So, Maryland, as I mentioned, was one of two proprietary colonies, Lord Baltimore, Lord Calvert, um, who were given quasi-defined uh, section of longitude and latitude and free reign to pretty much do what they wanted so long as they paid uh, their annual tribute. Maryland was founded as a refuge for Catholics and fairly early on in the enterprise that they did enshrine that it was against the law for somebody to uh, disparage another person's religion. It was not terribly enforced because around this time, what had been the Catholic majority was subsumed by a general, more Protestant uh, majority. Meanwhile, back in Sweden, the daughter of Gustavus Adolphus, who was six when he died, is coming of age, and at 16, uh, she's had the, the title queen for a while, but at 16, she begins to assert her authority. So this is Stockholm in 1642. Essentially, it was an island fortress um, and then it just started to spread to the mainland on either side. If you can imagine, way to the right is where the Baltic Sea is. And this was the seat of power in downtown Stockholm. And this is Christina. She was raised as a boy. Um, she, her father loved her as a girl, but he raised her as a boy. And she was into falconry and all kinds of more manly pursuits. But she was the one who, with the Secretary of State of his age, this gentleman, Alex Oxenstierna, um, that the two of them wrote what is a prototype, in part, for our religious guarantees of freedom. Because in 1642, as they were sending out a new expedition to resupply the tenuous uh, claim that they had essentially on the Delaware River between New Amsterdam and Maryland that they gave detailed instructions to the new governor who was heading out with this expedition. And one of them is, is on your sheet uh, and another, oh, we'll get to it I guess in, in a sec. Uh, one of them talks about balancing uh, the fairness, being fair with, with the Dutch who are to the north and the Catholics to the south. The other is, and it's the first time in any of the American founding documents that this is posed in this fashion, to treat the indigenous people with respect, to uh, buy the land 
uh, to, to offer a uh, deed of sale and goods and to proselytize to them, to, to try and convert them, but to, to do so with a degree of respect, whereas in some of the other Massachusetts Bay things or Virginia, that it's all about conquering the heathens when the indigenous people are, are mentioned. But the instructions to the new governor in 1642, they, they express a vision of the Protestant gospel uh, being welcomed by the indigenous folks so long as they are treated with respect. So, New Amsterdam is on what they called the North River, we would call the Hudson River today. And in fact, this was on Governor's Island in the early 1630s. <coughs> so it, it was a small operation and it was mercantile in its emphasis. It wasn't uh, designed uh, to do much more than uh, be an active trading spot. Uh, they had the, the for-profit company uh, that operated uh, this colony. Th they had no desire to interface with the Indians except to get the pelts, the otter pelts and other things. Um, and so there was a lot of constant friction, both Staten Island, Manhattan, and New Jersey, uh, as this colony spread to both sides of, of the North River, as they called it. The South River is what we call the Delaware River today, but for, for the, from the Dutch perspective, for them, they, they claimed essentially the entire swath from the tip of Long Island on the north all the way down to uh, the headwaters of the Chesapeake Bay. And of course, the New Englanders disputed some of that, as did uh, the folks in Maryland. And then there were the interloper Swedes who just sailed up to Delaware and said, ooh, this looks nice here. So turned on its side. This is the mouth of the Hudson River. Uh, Manhattan is center on the right, side to side. But again, it, it gives an indication of the modest level of development in this early colony. Now, th this is miles, or whatever the Dutch equivalent would be of miles, better than what the Swedes will find when they sail up the Delaware about this time. So this is the water view of the Manhattan, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, Manhattan, New Amsterdam, 1650s. So Sweden had undergone a rather ab an abrupt uh, joining uh, of common cause with the continent. For a long time, they'd been a rather backwater place, but Gustavus Adolphus and his immediate predecessor, his father, uh, welcomed intellectuals from Europe, and everybody starting at the turn of the 17th century adopted Latinized names. Um, and so that actually reads NYA for new, Naya, and then S-V-E-R-I-G, New Sweden in Latin. So, 1642, new governor arrives with these instructions that include proselytizing to the natives and buying any land, paying for it, having a deed for it. 
And this was the 400-pound governor. 6'5", 400 pounds, um, a Goliath, as they called him, or the natives called him Big Tub. But <laughs> he, he, yeah. um, he, he followed the letter of his instructions and uh, offered goods for all the land that uh, he sought for the colony. So you can imagine at the top of this map, that's the Atlantic Ocean, and the wide area that gets narrower, that's the mouth of the Delaware Bay, and then the Delaware River continues below. So again, this is a European rendering, a European perspective on the otherwise vacant land that they are wishing to claim as their own. Down bottom, you can see rather crude uh, image of natives, but again, that was the perspective in the early, mid-17th century of what the continent held. Meanwhile, as the Swedes are setting up their little farming communities, the Dutch from New Amsterdam uh, are upset by it, and of course, you know, there's lots of bravado and knocking people's hats off. But what's most germane here is that the, the Swedes and this approach to treat the natives with a modicum of respect and uh, to allow for other religions, even as in Sweden uh, the state church is the Lutheran church, that in these instructions for the new governor, all religions are supposed to be accorded uh, allowance to do what they would wish. Whereas by this point in Maryland, which has a Catholic minority, uh, that the favorable laws have been largely rescinded or aren't being enforced, and there's persecution of the Catholics there. So some of them actually come up a little bit north to the new Sweden colony. And that's the famed governor. So, corollary to what's on your handout, here's one of the other pertinent instructions in 1642 that otherwise puts to paper and then into practice the notion that other people's practice of their religion is to be accorded the due respect of the law. So, one of the more astonishing and overlooked aspects of this history, of this moment in time, is that on this expedition comes a Lutheran pastor who's been serving in Stockholm, and he is so impassioned by the natives that he meets that uh, even as once a week uh, he does a service at the Swedish settlement that the other six days he's out with the Lene Lenape or just the Lenape Indians, the Delaware Indians who live in the region. And his name is Johan Campanius, um, a Latinized name. And he learns 
their language to the point that by the time that he leaves, uh, six years later, that he has translated Luther's catechism into Lenape, and of course, some of the concepts and certainly some of the language uh, that are standard in Sweden are alien to the natives. But he uh, persists, and what do you know, this is fast forwarding, almost 200 years, 150 years, that here in Ohio, the Naden Hutton community, those Delaware Indians, those Christianized native Delaware Indians who migrated west as the Europeans pressed them uh, across the mountains, that they are the direct descendants of the folks who uh, this Lutheran pastor proselytized to and greeted them with their own language ultimately. So there's an Ohio connection. I had to jump through some hoops. So, as with on your sheet, here's another example, and I apologize, I don't know why the margin is trimmed, but in, in metaphors and language that otherwise uh, was comprehensible to the Lenape minds, uh, that he broke down the Ten Commandments and all of Luther's catechisms, um, and of course, you know, the Lenape didn't have a written language, so it was all phonetic. But we got through that much faster than I was expecting. Um, so, anything catch anybody's eye specifically that I can illuminate some more on? And we do have a microphone for those who will be listening on the podcast later. Again, all this is rather long-winded prologue for our American experience, but for me, it is all too illustrative of the chaos that was Europe as people, whether for pursuing religious freedom or just mere survival, were willing to brave months on the open ocean for a chance at something better. Surprisingly, of the various colonies, charter, crown, proprietary, that many of them, including our dearly beloved uh, pilgrims and Puritans up in Massachusetts, that they'd been victims of persecution. Yet, when they got here, to the, to the, uh, oh, to the extreme that people left Massachusetts and you know, went to the woods founded Connecticut or Rhode Island, um, as we know them today, but that too many of the Eastern Seaboard original colonies had their own infection of uh, religious absolutism. Now, unlike in Europe, they weren't immediately abutting one another such that the, the friction uh, oftentimes spilled into violence, but in fact, in 1655, New Amsterdam 
under a guy named Peter Stuyvesant, who was the governor there, um, they led the largest armada that the Western Hemisphere had ever seen to take over New Sweden. It was 700 men, 19 ships, and they sailed from New York Harbor, then down to Delaware, and just by dint of their sheer cannon power and manpower, they made the Swedes capitulate. Now, the same thing happened to Peter Stuyvesant nine years later when the English arrived in New York Harbor, the North River Harbor, and said, we'd like this colony. And he didn't have the, the guns to stave it off. But in Maryland, but more so in what becomes Pennsylvania, and this was, again, two generations before William Penn enters the picture, but in the area that becomes Pennsylvania and Delaware, that the idea of religious practices different than your own being not only permissible but also guaranteed by, by writ is to this point unique in certainly Western history. And I like being able to trace things back and understand the origin story with a bit of clarity and when possible referencing you know, the original documentation that otherwise gives us insight into what was going on and apples to apples. And we have a question from Jim. Fascinating, Andrew, this notion that we grow up in America in elementary school learning about the pilgrims coming to, to this continent in 1620 or whatever year it was so that they could practice their religion and that they could practice it with freedom but they were autocratic about that religion. And it was the Swedes, and this is the first time I'm hearing this in my life, that the Swedes were the first, one, first ones to document a fairness doctrine about the practice of religion, and that that took place about the same time that the pilgrims were being, and Puritans were being dogmatic about their religion and, and instituting their rules upon this, this new continent. So that's a fascinating piece. And a, another fascinating piece for me is when we, when we look at dates and years and when certain things happen, my mind always runs to, well, what else was happening in those years? Well, Johann Sebastian Bach was born in 1650. That has nothing to do with what, what you've talked about, but it just just centers us a little bit on what else was happening. But there was a very significant religious thing that happened in about 1650. The Westminster Confession of Faith was adopted by the Scottish Parliament in 1650 in whole, without any exception, without any changes. And two years later, the English par Parliament adopted the same document with a, a couple slight changes, and I can't talk about the changes because I don't know what they were, but they were slight. So that happened about this time, and we trace our Presbyterian history right to that document. Uh, it was the first basically codified confession that the Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church through the Church of Scotland adopted. Lastly, the we think of 
the United States and what our Constitution guarantees about religious freedom and the practice of religion. And we've always been taught that that was a, a prospect, it was a proposal that came out of the period of the Enlightenment, which I think the dates were going to put at about 1700 for Voltaire and his writings, and it was a French idea, and Jefferson grabbed a hold of it. So about 150 years after the Swedes decided that there should be religious freedom on this continent, through the Enlightenment and through Jefferson, we finally decided it's a pretty good idea. Let's, let's codify it and let's make it official. So we go from 1620 and this governor of New Sweden to 1770, 150 years later, we're finally getting around by way of the Enlightenment to making this an official thing. Interesting though, the Swedes didn't need the period of Enlightenment to come to that conclusion. Yes, and it was an autocratic top-down decision. Yeah. Whereas the, the principality, the kingdom, or the queendom as it might be, um, decided on behalf of uh, their, their subjects what the religion was. In this instance, in 1642, that explicitly the allowance was made for other practices. Yes, Kent. So you're saying, Andrew, that the main reason we didn't have the, the real severe conflicts between like the Protestants and the Catholics and so forth in the New World was just simply the space that was there and preoccupation with other things than those close political alliances and so forth. Geography favored the new continent in that regard. Um, it wasn't immediately understood by the, the kings and queens or state secretaries, if you will, when Columbus was returning with news, uh, what awaited, and certainly the discovery of, of gold in Central and South America uh, fueled, literally, um, a lot of that exploration. But here in North America, where those uh, ore resources weren't as immediately apparent, um, that there was less pressure from Europe to find space. There's also a great deal more space and fewer native residents. And so the conflicts more often arose between the European settlers, whether they were in New England or Virginia, uh, with the natives who felt abused by the relationship. Jamestown was wiped out in 1620. Um, and New Amsterdam was all but leveled a few times by uh, very angry Lenape Lenape Indians. In fact, in 1655, when Peter Stuyvesant led this armada to go take over New Sweden, he had to hightail it back to New Amsterdam because the absence of uh, most of the ships from the harbor and six, 700 men from the colony left it vulnerable and the Lenape Indians in northern New Jersey and southern Connecticut recognized this and so they came in and killed and scalped 
dozens and laid waste to everything that they could, torched uh, much of the many of the plantations. So in Europe, where everybody for centuries had developed uh, their parcel of land and had their, their little duchy or whatever, um, and there was somebody who already lived on the neighboring plot, that it was a different mentality than what was discovered here in the New World, but it didn't set in as an opportunity at first because the, the distance um, was so great, and even through the American Revolution, or up to the American Revolution, that Britain, when they controlled most of the Eastern Seaboard, um, thought of the colonies as a provider of resources for the industry of Britain, and maybe, just maybe, as a purchaser of finished goods. Um, but in terms of uh, colonial conflict with another colony, it did happen. In fact, it was usually over um, access to land that was ill-defined. Certainly Pennsylvania and Maryland had uh, a long-standing feud that was settled by Mason and Dixon, but even Connecticut and Pennsylvania, with New York in between, Connecticut and Pennsylvania fought a war um, over what's now northeastern Pennsylvania because Connecticut claimed it from its charter because extending from the east coast all the way to wherever the Pacific Ocean was, that Connecticut, in writing, said that that was theirs. They skipped over the, the swath of New York around the Hudson River, but they picked up the claim in what was Penn's colony, and hundreds of people died in the Wyoming Valley conflict uh, between Connecticut and Pennsylvania. But that, that, that wasn't religiously inspired, it was, it was about land. It, it actually predates that. It predates that, okay. But that didn't the Western Reserve lands have to do with Connecticut? Wasn't that the remnant of what Connecticut allegedly mm. had claim to? And, and Virginia had laid claim to it, too. Okay. same kind of components and and as you said the the, the uh, people who went there were looking for the gold they were looking for the spices and they were highly unsuccessful in that but they had the same kind of war between the Huguenots mm -hmm. uh, and the Spanish in Jacksonville and and I, I didn't hear you mention the influence of the French in the colony Area. What can you say about that? Um, in the Caribbean, it was very strong, certainly uh, in Canada, with the uh, Quebec and then the traders going down, uh, I guess, Champlain and then the Ohio River Valley and Mississippi River. But since from Florida, which was Spanish, up to Nova Scotia, that the French never made a, a, a serious land claim on, on any of those estuaries or river uh, mouths, that the, the conflict with the French or the challenge of 
the colonies with the French was as the, the seaboard colonies wanted to expand further west that French trappers and French missionaries uh, were there and said, oh, you know, whether it's Duquesne or Detroit or wh whatever, that we were here first um, and uh, therefore go away. Um, and of course, you know, in the 1760s, we had the French and Indian War. Now, they didn't call it that at the time, um, but the, the French, let's see, in the, what we now turn the Thirty Years' War, in the first half of the 17th century, uh, France was a critical player in it. If you can imagine that France, which was Catholic, the entire time was aligned with Protestants in fighting against the Catholic Holy Roman Empire. So, uh, Richelieu um, was the equivalent of the Secretary of State. That he, he was the one who, with Gustavus Adolphus, worked out a mercenary deal such that France paid Sweden, this is in the 1620s, 1630s, untold sums for men, to men, men under arms. In fact, even before getting to the depopulation that happened in Central Europe because of the war and the ravages of it, that in Scandinavia, chiefly Sweden, but Sweden was bigger then, that so many men died from Sweden uh, fighting in the conflict that it went from essentially a one-to-one -one ratio of men to women to a four-to-one ratio of women to men. That the, the, the ravages were, were so extreme that for generations that, um, and Sweden wasn't a location of conflict, it was, it was just, it, it provided men uh, that its king and then queen agreed uh, to do for France because France didn't have the manpower but they had the, the, the wealth so they you know, just like in the American Revolution that we hear about the Hessians German mercenaries well century plus before that Sweden had done the same on France's behalf um, and the Catholics of France were underwriting the Protestants in decades of, of awful just total war in Central Europe. Yes, Rich. Um, yeah, you know, I was in thinking I had not known a lot of this, but uh, I think of this stuff in terms of law, of course. Um, and I, it makes me wonder, you know, the, the First Amendment talks about the Congress shall pass no law to abridge the freedom of religion. So that in forming the Constitution, the, they were concerned that Congress would impose on the states a national religion. And the states were obviously concerned that we want to do our own thing. Um, that amendment did not apply to the states at that time. You know, and it wasn't until I think it was 1860, in the 1860s, 14th. when the 14th Amendment yeah. was passed, and then there was a Supreme Court case that incorporated those amendments and imposed those obligations on the states, that it became illegal for the states to impose religious, or impose on religious freedom. 
So I, I think it's a, a, a progression of understanding probably mm -hmm. the enlightenment, but carried through in law over time. And a precursor to that, which again, apologies for the margin here, um, on the right-hand half of all 61 of Edward Hicks's renditions of the Peaceable Kingdom, that there's a, a little setting beneath a tree that has a bunch of natives and a couple of fellows in broad-brimmed hats. Well, for Edward Hicks, who grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a little bit north of where Philadelphia is, um, for him, the new Eden that was the new world uh, was crystallized in the treaty that William Penn in 1682 initially did with the natives. And that was buying rights to the land from the indigenous peoples. Now, as I shared today, that that concept in that, t in that place had actually been occurring for 40 some years before that with the Swedes who, who settled the region sparsely. I mean, there were never more than 1,500 Swedes there uh, before the, the Welsh arrived in the 1680s. Uh, but William Penn arrived to a region that was uniquely uh, suited to his progressive thinking and his peaceful notions. Because from central New Jersey all the way up through New England and from Ma Maryland, certainly Virginia on south, that every one of the colonies had running issues with the indigenous peoples who felt that they were getting the raw end of the deal, that they were not able to use their hunting grounds or their fishing grounds as before, and the concept of owning land was alien to them. So the, the Europeans who didn't want to pay if they didn't have to, largely didn't, and they just took what they wanted, and, and of course, that led to frictions. But because of the, peace, excuse me, the peaceable nature of the tribe that lived in the greater Delaware Valley and the Swedish attitude when they first came in 1638 of respect, that when William Penn and his great experiment began in 1682, that it was, pun intended, it was very fertile ground for uh, the ideas that, that he was postulating. And in fact, uh, what the instructions from the Sw Swedish queen had done in 1642 became even more enshrined and encoded in the frame of government, which was uh, what William Penn wrote for his proprietary colony. He, he, he decided the parameters and all the specifics of how the colony would operate. And uh, inherent to that was the respect for other religions. He himself was a Quaker, uh, not a birthright Quaker, he, uh, he converted. But for him, even as the Church of England, the state church, uh, was a bit of anathema, um, that he was fine with it. And in fact, uh, it was a Catholic king of England who uh, sealed the deal on giving Penn this grant. Anyway, for Edward Hicks, as he's conceiving of the American experiment and just how unique it is and privileged it is and humbling it is, that he drew inspiration from, uh, the, I think it's the, the sixth chapter of Isaiah, uh, just after the uh, plowshares uh, bit that's quoted on, on your handout, 
um, where the lamb shall lie down with the lion. And so, of course, you know, some of these predator animals are not indigenous to North America. It's allegorical. But for Hicks, um, it was a metaphor for uh, the, the way that man and nature and man and man can and should uh, interact and that for him, a, a keystone, no pun intended, uh, for that was the treaty that was never broken, the, the one that uh, was honored by both sides when William Penn, 1682, bought a large swath of land from the natives. Sorry, we have um, a col we had a um, society that separated from Germany and came by way by way of Pennsylvania to Zor, and they had their um, separatist society that was a commune basically until around 1900. So it was over 100 years, and they you know they came because they were persecuted in in Germany, and that was a very um, Simple society, you know, but but they were pretty much left alone, and you know that they came here because of religious freedom. So, you know, it, it, it's real close to home. It's right here. It is, and for me, the the Pennsylvania story is just it's a template for the larger whole, and certainly the fact that for a century and a half it was the main entry point for a lot of. Europeans as they were otherwise coming to the New World, that before the ascendancy of New York at the turn of the 19th century, that Philadelphia uh, was, after London, the second largest city in the British Empire. Uh, this was before they took over India, thank you very much. Um, but it, it, it's a lens by which we can just focus on it, and then see the larger sweep of history as it, as it occurred there. And certainly it carries through to other places, and a lot of the dispossessed religiously from Europe came seeking an opportunity to, be the, to worship in their fashion. And significantly, because we had so much real estate, that if you didn't feel like you were uh, given the, the due respect that you deserve, rather than seek legal recourse, you just take a little bit farther west. I was just, and I, I may be getting ahead of sure. what your intentions are because I know this is a multi-part series, but um, I'd be interested in your thoughts about the fact that Penn was a Quaker uh, and versus, you know, the Protestants, particularly the Church of England uh, or the Anglicans that were coming over. The, the was was there a less of a evangelical bent to the Quakers that may have played into this notion that they didn't feel the need to proselytize and convert? Funny you should mention that. <laughs> um, and again, th this is one of those preconception shattering type things that at the outset, the Society of Friends was a scourge or perceived as a scourge because the adherents would go to what seemed like outrageous lengths to make their point that it, uh, not only would they not take an oath, um, 
you know, swear to serve their king. No, they, they would not do that because it was contrary to their religion. That the men wouldn't take off their hats as a sign of respect because contrary to their religion. There were some early members of Society of Friends who buck naked would walk into Anglican services and decry the heresies that were going on because ceremonies and rituals and liturgies were not there in the Bible. And of course, a transformative thing for the Reformation, Luther and, and afterwards, was having the word of God in the, the native tongue, in, in the vulgar. Um, and so, uh, even during Henry VIII's uh, time, that uh, while an English language Bible was illegal, it was also highly coveted. And reputedly, he was the biggest collector of them all. Um, but once, once people actually could respond to the word themselves, that they, they uh, had many manifestations of it. And with the Quakers, Quakers being a derogatory term at, at the outset, um, that they're speaking in tongues and they're being missionaries in Europe and going to Rome or Venice and doffing their clothes and going in, in the middle of a service, they were, they were perceived as lunatics. Um, and the, the more sedate Quakers that we might think of today, okay, uh, over time, uh, that seemed to win out. But in the first couple decades of Society of Friends, that they were really thorny people to the establishment. <laughs> yes, can, can, you, can you imagine somebody today, as Pastor DeVries is otherwise giving a lovely sermon, if somebody came in in their birthday suit and said, you know, that this isn't in the Bible, therefore we need to reconsider, it would not go down well. <laughs> um, And, and to your question about uh, Penn and Society of Friends and the established religion for, for England, uh, the established religion for England was changeable and it had been Rome, then it wasn't, then it was. Um, and so people were, were questioning, I mean, the, the general populace even in, in the mundane aspects of their life, they were wondering what's going on, um, and then when ultimately they, they had a chance to en encounter the word of God in language that they understood, not something that was performed for them in mass, uh, that it was inspirational. And so whether it's uh, Germany or Prussia or, or Switzerland or England, that you have this fertile flowering of uh, different expressions. And of course, you know, uh, my expression is, is better than yours because it feels more real to me, and that led to conflict. Um, and by and large, coming to the wide open spaces of North America, that they could find a quiet corner and be themselves. And so whether it was the, the, the Deutsch, uh, who became the Pennsylvania Dutch or the Amish, um, or a whole host of, of sects that uh, were founded, if you will, in the 16th and early 17th century, that they, they died out in Europe because most of their young or middle-aged people said, this is nuts, and 
they, they looked for greener pastures. Of course, the greener pastures were 3,000 ocean miles away, but it was worth it to, to be able to, to encounter God in, in the fashion that, that you wished. And some of those utopian communities, including Zor, um, are coming up. Okay. Thank you all. And we'll figure out the technology by then.